It's the Andy Thompson Show on ESPN 97.7. Good friends at Ideal Home and Auto Paint. The Sport Hole. Sports, 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 sports. Football is not Hamlet. It's not tragedy. It should be fun. Nick Saban. Mm-hmm. Interesting quote to start out the biography of Nick Saban, that football is not supposed to be tragedy or too serious. It's supposed to be fun because playing for Nick Saban, it's like playing for Herman Boone. Zero fun, sir. At least that was what my perception was. Uh, Saban retiring from the University of Alabama. talked about it a little bit yesterday, but I wanted to lead the show with it today to talk about how much I, I like and respect Saban and how he is the greatest of all time. Try to talk, give some other stuff than what you've been hearing all day, uh, if possible. Here is Saban talking about why now was the right time for him to go. I that this was the right time to retire. No, I don't think there's any good time, especially when you're a coach, because once you're a coach, you think you're going to be a coach forever. But I actually thought that uh, in hiring coaches, uh, recruiting players, uh, that my age started to become a little bit of an issue. People wanted uh, assurances that I would be here for three years, five years, whatever, and that got harder and harder for me to be honest about. And to be honest, this last season uh, was grueling. Uh, it was a real grind uh, for us to come from where we started to where we got to. Uh, took a little, little more out of me than usual. And, you know, when people mentioned the health issue, it was really just the grind of, can you do this the way you want to do it? So now Alabama is hunting for the next coach. Here is why, in my opinion, Dan Lanning made the clear right choice in not going to Alabama, not following Nick Saban and going to Tuscaloosa. One, Oregon is filthy rich. His new contract is going to be one of the biggest in college football anyway. Two, the Big Ten is very winnable. I know Michigan just went to the national title and Washington just went to the national title. They'll both be in the Big Ten, but it's the Big Ten. They had a good year this year, at the top at least. Well, that's a fat, a bunch of junk after Ohio State and Michigan and sometimes Penn State that you can go in there and you can win that conference. You can for sure go to the playoff every year, whereas I still think the SEC top to bottom is the best conference in the country, even though they didn't win the title this year. Third, um, nobody's won at Oregon. And this is the most important thing for a coach like Lanning, who is the up-and-coming guy in college football right now, it seems like, is you want to stake out your own thing. You want 20 acres and a mule. You want to head west. You want to find unmanned territory, virgin land that you can cultivate and make your own. And Tuscaloosa is obviously the opposite of that. You think of some of these coaches and some of the jobs that we always consider the best jobs in the country. Alabama is one of those, but not for a guy like Lanning, not for a guy who sees his potential as a guy who can get a statue outside of Autzen Stadium. You go to Bama, the odds of you... Uh, overcoming what Bear did and then what Saban did and getting a statue were zero. You're not getting a statue at Austin Stadium. You're not going to get a statue at Florida State. You're not going to get a, a statue at Florida. Probably not at Oklahoma. Uh, USC. So all of these jobs that we talk about, the premier college football programs, the best jobs in the country, Texas, 
you're not going to have the type of career and legacy there to overcome whatever big shadows are there. Saban, like the shower thought was talking about, pulled off the, the miracle of all miracles, choosing to go to the most sacred place in college football and upstaging the sacredest cow in the country in college football, and that was Bear Bryant winning six titles in an era, I think, more competitive than when Bear was doing it in the 60s and 70s when he was winning his titles. You don't want to do that. So staying at Oregon that doesn't have that Mount Rushmore coach and hasn't been good since they started pouring money into the program when Joey Harrington was there in 2000 or whatever, Oregon to me is one of the most premier jobs in the country because it's virgin land that you can claim for your own. You have a chance to get a statue. Urban went to Florida, but that's still spurrier territory. Notre Dame, Brian Kelly said, I got to get the heck out of Notre Dame. There's too many shadows. There's too many echoes of the past. Lou Holtz and and uh, Parsesian and, and Newton, all these guys. I'm going to go to LSU that has all of the talent, has the vehicle, but doesn't have a legendary historic coach that I have to battle my entire, and, and, uh, excuse me, my entire career here. So they're... USC, you could say, well, you know, Pete Carroll, John Robinson before him. The reason why USC is a semi-good job now is because it's been a while. So a lot of these programs have a resurrection factor that you can get a lot of glory if you resurrect that program. USC, for Lincoln Riley, was that program. It had been 20 years since Pete Carroll was, was dominating and winning championships there. It's still high expectations. It's still going to be hard to become the guy at USC historically, but it's been a while. So if he gets him to a, a national championship and wins and maybe gets a couple, two, three, then you got, you're got in statue territory outside of the Coliseum. Uh, Lincoln Riley came from Oklahoma, which is also a tough place to overcome a lot of the big names like Stoops and Wilkinson and those guys at, uh, at Florida. Florida State, I mean, Norvell... Think of all the people after Bowden that have gone through Florida State and failed. And Norvell is now one of the top guys for Alabama's next coach. And if I'm him, I'm like, ah, I don't know if I want to go take that job. So if I'm Bama, I'm saying I've got more resources than anybody in the country. I've got the most um, effective, cutting-edge NIL. I've got a professional franchise, facilities, organization, and that's what Saban deserves a lot of credit for is not just the recruiting and the in-game stuff, but making Alabama a professional team in college football. And if I'm Alabama, I'm saying I don't, I'm looking at the precipice of a 20-year dark age potentially, kind of like USC after Pete Carroll. I don't want to do that. I'm going to do everything in my power to get a guy here now with this current roster. This star-studded roster that Saban took to the college football playoff this year, all of these guys can jump into the portal right now. The portal is open for these guys as soon as their coach leaves, and they're going to be getting offers from all over the place, NIL and all that stuff. So if I'm Alabama, I want to get to the college football playoff next year and have another, and not have this long dip that Florida State had after Bowden and kind of during Bowden. That Paterno, that Penn State had it after Paterno and kind of during Paterno at the end. 
and that some of these other big-name schools have had after legendary coaches. And how you do that is you've got to go and just get a guaranteed guy. I'm offering Kirby Smart $20 million a year. And Kirby's never going to leave Georgia because Georgia right now is a better program, arguably, than Alabama. And Kirby's built that and is is got a ch- chance to be a statue guy at Georgia. But if I'm Alabama, I'm saying I'll pay you $20 million a year. Whatever they're paying you, I'll, I'll double it. I'll give you $25 million. It's that valuable. Think of all of the money Alabama, Tuscaloosa, and that university has gotten over the past 20 years because of Nick Saban maybe 15 years because of Nick Saban and the football program and the brand. The football coach in Tuscaloosa is the most important person in the school, in the state. Go pay whatever you have to, not to have to take a risk on a guy like Norvell or, heaven forbid, Lane Kiffin. I mean, these people that want Alabama to go hire Lane Kiffin are insane. I love Kiffin, but he's got to be the rebel. He's got to be Luke Skywalker taking on the Empire. He can't be Darth Vader. He can't last in that type of situation with that type of structure. He, it, Ole Miss is perfect for Lane Kiffin. We've seen him take over prestige programs like USC, like Tennessee, and he didn't last five months, you know. So I wouldn't trust Lane Kiffin if I'm Alabama. And if I'm, if I'm Lanning, I'm... I'm, you know, I think he was uh, made a brilliant decision there. Anything else on that one, Larry? Before we, oh, Dabo. The the big knock about paying Dabo big bucks to leave Clemson to go to Alabama is twofold. One, Dabo's in a statue. Are you at a statue school, Dabo? Yes. Dabo will get a statue outside of Death Valley in Clemson if he stays there. So that's the toughest thing for Alabama to, to to beat. Two, Alabama doesn't want Dabo. They were chanting outside Bryant-Denny Stadium last night, anybody but Dabo, and that might be because of the rivalry and Dabo beat him in the, in the national title a couple of times. Dabo hasn't, this is what everybody says about Dabo Sweeney, he hasn't adapted to the new college football with the NIL and the transfer portal, right? He hasn't put the resources into it. He hasn't gone after and built up his roster with transfer portal guys like everybody else has, and that's why Clemson has fallen behind. If Alabama goes and gets Dabo, Alabama already has a full-functioning apparatus, Larry. They've already got the NIL. They've already got all of the whatever characters and the collectives and all the stuff that is full firing so Dabo won't have to try to build that up like he's failing to do at Clemson so I think Dabo is a championship winner and a program guy a cult leader who can keep something going taking a risk on a guy like uh, Norvell from Florida State or some of these lesser known guys who haven't won anything you don't want to take that risk if you're Bama if you can throw 15, 20 million at a proven guy and ride this Saban wave. Saban has built the infrastructure, the program. Ride this wave out longer, as long as you can. There's no reason to reset with a young, unproven guy. Go throw a billion dollars at a a guy who's won, like Kirby or Dabo. And when they say no, then you go after Sarkeesian. Fine. You know, pay him 12 million or 15 million or whatever. Uh, DeVore. The, the, the problem with the boar is the SEC eats guys like the boar 
for, for day one. They just eat you for breakfast because you don't have a southern accent. You don't know the area. You don't know the high school coaches. You're not from there. You know, they look down at you because you made hay at a small level in college football. Then you're in the Pac-12, which they scoff at. So DeBoer going to Tuscaloosa to me is like Harson at, at Auburn. It's just not a great fit. Even though I think he's a great coach and a winner and all that stuff, I don't wish that on him because I think they would just eat him alive. Um, here is, this is Barstool, what's his name? Brandon Walker from Barstool. His opinion about kind of the landscape right now in college football, which I thought was interesting. I think the balance of power, I think the SEC's run is over. I think the, nope. balance, I think the balance of power in college football has switched and I don't know the Big Ten 100% has it, but I think it is out there for the taking for somebody. Like, well, why would the Big Ten not have it? The two teams that just played for national championship are fair enough. Are Big Ten. Fair enough. But I think you got to lock it in. I think you got. I think you can have it right now. Like you, you've you've picked it up, but you got to carry it somewhere to to have it, right? I I I don't agree. I mean, I I, I think the Big Ten. I think I think college football in general is just so much more fun now. I mean, having consecutive national title games with TCU and Washington in them is awesome. So it's great. The byproduct of the portal in the NIL, as I've said a million times, has made college football more fun. There's more parity. The talent's more spread out. That's all good. But the big, give me a break with the big tank crap. Michigan wins a title. Played nobody all year. Lucked out. Got to play Washington in the championship game. I know they beat Bama, but... You got to win a couple of titles in a row to take over what the USC has done, or excuse me, the uh, SEC has done in the national title. Right, Larry? Yes. I mean, the SEC wins the national title two out of three years. So you win one, you know, Ohio State won, you know, 2013 or whatever. And then a Big Ten team didn't win for another 10 years. So let's not freak out about that. Very good, Lawrence. Next topic, my friend. The Sport Hall. Sports, 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 sports. Two-minute drill. Presented by Ideal Home and Auto Paint. To the five, to the two, diving, touchdown! All right, what a game last night in the pit. We hyped it all show long yesterday. It was awesome. Pineview Snow Canyon. Great atmosphere. The Pineview Band was awesome. Great coaching. Great passion on the sidelines. Fun to watch. Two new guys and Coach Amico and Coach Ball just coaching their guts out. In a really good game. Um, let me start with Nash Schroeder. He started the game with like nine consecutive points, scoring. He, he can make every shot on the floor. Threes, driving, spinning, in traffic, fade away. This kid is a major league scorer. So fun to watch. And he had the eye of the tiger from the jump last night in the pit. Eye of the panther. Right, Larry? Yes. Griffin Shepard was awesome. He makes every three shoots, it seems like. He had 20 points for him. But maybe most impressive after Schroeder's performance was probably the team defense by Pineview. Uh, Owen Mackey was like four of seventeen. They made they made his life so difficult last night, where they were blitzing him. If he got the ball on the high post, there were two guys on him. If he decided to drive, there were three guys waiting for him. Right. So that was an impressive just focus on 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 Mackey. Which usually, if you're putting two guys focusing and charging on Mackey, he can kick it out and they're making threes. That wasn't the case last night. Snow Canyon 
four of 21 from three, which for them is with the guys like Entz and Smith and Mackey and all these good shooters, very rare, I think, performance shooting from the perimeter for Snow Canyon. But it was just one of those nights. But credit Pineview for being up in an incredible way. Um, I thought that uh, Ojegba came in off the kind of a defensive specialist, helped out on Mackey, blocked some shots. He was he was great defensively for him as well as Nash and you know everybody else. Griffin, uh, Cam Smith came in in the paint. He made a couple of buckets, but defense his defensive presence and just basketball IQ was great, fun to watch. And for Snow Canyon, you got to say we didn't play great. Uh, Mackey went 4 of 17. We couldn't buy a bucket, and we still had a chance to win the game. It was a three-point game. Um, Kelsch had an incredible step-back three and then had a chance on a buzzer beater from near half court to tie the game. It almost went in. So even though they didn't play a great game, and Pineview did, Snow Canyon was still right there. So it was awesome. Uh, Desert Hills won big against Hurricane in the Thunderdome, and then Cedar lost to Crimson Cliffs. It was close at halftime, but then Crimson went off. They outscored Cedar like 51-20 to or something in the second half to get the win on the road in an Iron County. Um, let's jump to local college shoots. Utah Tech versus Stephen F. Austin tonight, 7 p.m. at the Burns Arena. Go get your whack pack. You can buy the rest of the home slate for both men's and women's basketball at uh, utahtechtrailblazers.com. And it's only 100 bucks. It's like 16 games for 100 bucks. You get all the rest of the games in the Burns for the rest of the year. Big one tonight for Utah Tech. Stephen F. Austin's good. They shoot a ton of free throws. Top scoring offense, I believe, still in the whack. And Utah Tech has played really well at home. It sucked that they had to play Grand Canyon directly after their big Seattle trip because they played, you know, they got the arguably the biggest, uh, one of the biggest wins of the year against UVU at home. And I think Stephen F. Austin poses a big challenge. We talked about uh, Noah Gonzalez. Beyond Riley has been awesome the last few games. Big Larry and David Elliott, kind of that. Uh, one-two tandem on the pick and rolls. Fun to watch. High-flying. Big Larry throwing it down for the Trailblazers this year. Uh, 7 o'clock start on ESPN Plus as well. But go to the stadium. Have an experience, for heaven's sakes. What are you going to do? You're going to stay in your living room. You're going to you know put on the TV and fall asleep at 845, you know, on your couch. Go to the birds. Support the boys. Right, Larry? Yes. Are you going? Yes. Are you? Yes. I don't know if I believe you. Uh, cannot wait for the, the big bat show. Utah Tech 2-2 two and two in conference play right now. Next topic, Lawrence. The Sport Hall. Sports, 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 sports. Bill Belichick would lose this game to the Jets by a 10-3 count. Oh, wait, let me preface this one, Lawrence. On Sorry, so this is from the book. We played a little clip from the Saban book. This is from the Bill Belichick book, which I remember uh, listening to months ago. And uh, this is talking about, let's see, it's Patriots-Jets. And the Patriots are losing. It's in 2001. And it's when uh, Bled the game Bledsoe gets hurt. And it was interesting, to, this clip is interesting to me just to realize how screwed Belichick was at this point. 
in his career. Okay, now you can go ahead, Larry. Bill Belichick would lose this game to the Jets by a 10-3 count and fall to 0-2 on the season, to 5-13 in his time in New England, and to 41-57 and overall as an NFL head coach. Belichick was facing a potential sixth losing season in seven years of running the Patriots and the Cleveland Browns. No matter what he tried, the coach couldn't temper the growing suspicion that he was just another brilliant coordinator who didn't have the leadership skills and charisma to run his own team like his former boss Bill Parcells had. But a second-year quarterback named Tom Brady, sixth-round pick, was leading that failed final drive. Okay, so the reason I pulled that is... Let's see. Sorry, Larry. Um, He was going to get canned, maybe. I don't know if he would be canned after that year, but losing Bledsoe, had Brady not come in and saved the year um, and been great, obviously, things could have been different for, for old Bill. But... For all the people saying it was all Tom, like uh, our own Katie Rosenrose and our news reporter, who kind of gives editorial along with her news stories, I respect Bill. I love Bill. Kind of like my weird uh, obsession with Saban, I kind of have a similar thing for Belichick because of uh, he, he was just so much smarter than everybody. But let me give you my thoughts on Belichick here, Larry. He's got to be the real first... Talk about the trend of the film geek coach who didn't have a lot of... I know he played, you know, collegiately or whatever, right? Didn't he play at uh, a small school? I can't remember. Um, But he is the real first super film geek, bad personality, no charisma locked up in a film room type of guy. Now half the league are those types of coaches. But uh, Shula wasn't like that. All these great coaches were kind of charismatic. I don't know about Chuck Knoll. I don't know too much about him, but even Parcells, who was his mentor, was a bombastic big personality in front of a microphone saying stuff. The type of personality Belichick had could only be successful, like, no college team would want a guy like that because you can't build a program. You can't get you can't sell players to come and play for Belichick with that type of curmudgeon uh, personality. I don't think it wasn't until he started winning to where now players swear by him. Right, all of his former players are coming out saying how he's the greatest ever. But he kind of started, I think, that trend which is now prevalent in the NFL where you don't have to be Pete Carroll, big personality, fun Andy Reid type, to be an NFL coach. I think Brandon Staley, the guy that everybody hates at the Chargers, is kind of that way. Um, Sean McVay, maybe a little bit. Even Shanahan, who's kind of trying to model himself after his dad, is kind of more like that. The Browns guy. So I think that that might be a little bit of Belichick's uh, legacy as well. When it comes to credit for the Patriots' success, if you look at the Super Bowls, I think Bill Bill gets credit for the first one. That's a defensive win over the greatest show on turf, and he kind of takes a page out of helping Parcells and the Giants win Super Bowls back in the 80s. Taking on, uh, 
Let's see. Who did he beat? I can't even remember. Judas Priest, Larry. Do some research. I can't even remember. Look that up. Yes. It wasn't Montana because Montana never lost, but... Ah. But in 2001, when they beat the Rams... That's the high-flying best offense ever, right? He shuts down Warner and the Rams. That's a Belichick Super Bowl. He gets credit for that. He gets credit for when they beat the Rams just a few years ago. When they beat McVay and the Rams and held the Rams to like three points. That's a Belichick Super Bowl win. He gets credit for the Seahawks win because his obsession with film and all that stuff had Malcolm Butler prepared to jump that play and win the game. Otherwise, they lose it. Belichick gets credit for that one. Now, Tom gets credit for the Atlanta comeback, obviously. He gets credit for beating McNabb and the Eagles and probably the for beating DeLome and the, and the Panthers. Last-second drives, you know, stuff like that. He had a last-second drive with the Rams, too. But I think Belichick, when he beat the, sorry, when he beat the, the Martz Rams, the Warner Rams first, I give Belichick more credit than Brady, even though Brady had a great drive to set up Vinatieri for the, for the kick. So kind of three and three in the in the Super Bowl credit category. Um, Belichick, to me, gets credit because he won when the league allowed defense to happen. He won with a defensive-oriented when Tom was a game manager. And then he adapted, much like Saban did. The mirror on these two guys is pretty remarkable because um, Belichick switches in 07 or whatever and says, okay, we'll throw it 50 times a game. And we'll try to outscore people with you, Tom. And they win that way a few Super Bowls. And Saban had to do the same thing. After losing to Deshaun and Clemson, Saban says, okay, I can't win with A.J. McCarron types anymore or Blake Sims or McElroy's. I got to go get Jalen Hurts and Tua and Mac Jones and these star throw-it-40-time quarterbacks with a genius O.C., so both coaches adapted one in different eras of football during their dominant tenure. I like Belichick. Um, I think he doesn't get credit for some of his sense of humor. Like today when he comes to the podium and says, we haven't had this much, this many cameras here since when we signed Tim Tebow. That was a great line. Um, so great day. Or I guess uh, not a great day, but a historic. It's amazing both of these guys leave at the same time. Now, Belichick needs like 15 wins to take Shula's record, right, Larry? Yes. So he'll be back, I think. He'll go coach somewhere else. But Kraft kind of got sick of him. He got sick of Kraft. The the knock against Belichick is he couldn't. It's like Kobe and Shaq. He couldn't um, coexist with Brady. And really, Brady couldn't coexist with him because Belichick was didn't change how he treated him after Tom won six Super Bowls. He was still an a-hole to Tom. And so Tom left and had they stayed together, maybe they would still be competitive and maybe would have got a seventh Super Bowl in New England. So I guess that's a mark against him. Um, but the greatest ever to do it, both of them. And they coached together in Cleveland. So it's amazing. Alright, Larry, great job. Next topic. What do you got? Listener voicemail. Call us with your inane observations at 900-3776. Right, this is actually a text, right, Larry? Yes. What do you think about ESPN cheating in the Emmys? <laughs> yeah, all right, here's the headline. ESPN cheats in the Emmys and, you know, 
rigs the ballot and all that crap. That's what was on The Athletic today and every, everywhere else. Because ESPN's a big target, and I make fun of ESPN uh, just as much as anybody else for all the crap that I don't like that they do. But with this headline, it's uh, clickbait. Here's what they did. College game day would win Emmys. College game day. Do we have sound for that? You approach the cathedral. Beaver Stadium. One. Here. Becomes vivid. It's the greatest show ever. I mean, it's long, but it is the best. There's nothing like a Saturday morning. And you're having, you know, you're having your pancakes, and then you're just, you're filling the atmosphere wherever they're they're at. Game day is great. So game day won a bunch of Emmys as a show. And so they would send ESPN a couple of Emmys just for the show, right? But ESPN was like, well, we want to give Kirk Herbstreet and Lee Corso and Reese Davis and Chris Fowler and these people their own Emmys. So when we send in to the Emmys the names of people on the production that need Emmy trophies, we're going we're gonna to put these fake names on there so they'll send us more trophies than they normally would, and then we will, on the plaque, we'll re-engrave Corso's name on there and give him the trophy. Because according to the stupid Emmy rule, you're, you get like one Emmy just for the show that ESPN has. That, you, that The talent doesn't get individual Emmys. So they lied and said, okay, you give us one Emmy for the show, you give us a few other Emmys for the production and the director and stuff, but the talent don't get Emmys. That's dumb. We want Emmys for them too. So we're going to put down fake names on our list and then re-engrave them and give them to our talent. This is a nothing burger to me. Who gives a crap? The show won. ESPN didn't rig a ballot to where the Emmy said, Kirk Herbstreet is personality of the year by fake voting or anything. Initially, that's what I thought it was, was rigging a ballot so the Emmys thought that this guy, Kirk Herbstreet, got a bunch of votes when he really didn't. No. They basically just lied so the Emmys would send a trophy to Bristol. They'd re-engrave it and give it to Herb Street. Who cares, Larry? So ESPN's off the hook for this, in my humble opinion. Um, next topic. Do you agree with me? No. All right. Well, I don't care. Next topic. What don't you agree with, Lawrence? I'm Tiger Woods. 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 Mm-hmm. Okay, this is a text from from uh, earlier, Larry, from you. Who are your top five sports endorsers ever? With the news, Tiger and Nike uh, split ways. By the way, that was the best. MGF had some great commercials. Um, but the I Am Tiger Woods one, I make fun of it sometimes, but that was a great commercial. The best commercial they did with Tiger was when he they were just filming him and he was doing the with his iron. He was just tapping the ball up, going between his legs, tapping it, tapping it, tapping it, puts it up in the air and then hits it 250 yards. That was awesome. 
The other ones were awesome. Hello World, after he wins the Masters, or whatever that was. Uh, black and white, right? It was just uh, awesome. Great ad campaign. I think it's second only to MJF. MJF beats Tiger because of the, uh, the, the, the brand of Jordan is just the best brand ever. Commercials-wise, Jordan has, I don't remember any of them. Except, you remember the slow-mo one, Larry, where he's jumping from the free-throw line in a game and he's going to dunk it and it's slow-mo, then it cuts to people watching him in slow-mo and it's an awesome song? That was a great ad. See if you can dig that one up, Lawrence. That was great. But So I'd go MJ. You're asking my top five. The top five earners are like modern-day earners. Steph got a billion-dollar thing, lifetime deal with, with Under Armour. Cristiano Ronaldo got a Nike contract back in, like, 2003. Lifetime deal expected to exceed a billion dollars. Tiger was 1.5 billy. Starting from 1996. This is total expected lifetime type of deal, I think. Roger Federer, 300 million. Messi, 27 million in a year for Adidas. I don't know if he's still on that deal. And and uh, LeBron James is a lifetime deal with Nike, expected to be over a billion. But my personal guys are probably MJF, then Tiger, then. Um, then uh, Barkley doing, um, oh, man, right guard? What was the deodorant Barkley did? Look that up, Larry. Will you look that up? Yes. Uh, Shaq's just does every third product is, is Shaq. I don't really give a crap about Shaq. Uh, I'm missing a bunch. Let me know some of yours, Larry. Or if I'm missing some, folks, uh, text us at 900-3776. Who is your favorite sports endorser? Pete Rose did one back in the 70s for some kind of hair product that's funny on, on YouTube to, to look up. But NJF is one, Tigers too, in my opinion. Next topic, Larry. I, I live for radio and on television. And- Podcast of the week. Okay, this is uh, Stephen A. Smith beefing with... Uh, Jason Whitlock. And this is hilarious. So we'll go Stephen A. Smith's uh, podcast show. And I think we bleeped out the swear word here. And please do not allow this to be a reflection on my character because this is not how I act every day. But I mean it from my soul when I say this is the worst human being I've ever known. I don't know of another human being worse than Jason Whitlock. So that's, uh, that's Stephen A., and then here's Whitlock and why, uh, partially why Stephen A. This is just happening like, I think today or yesterday. Uh, here's what Whitlock was was saying about him that elicited that response from Stephen. Hey, go ahead, Larry. Stephen A. Smith is the Kevin Hart of the sports media. Smith is a plant. Disney and ESPN installed Smith at the top of the sports media world because his inadequacies as a journalist make him easy to control. Smith's story just doesn't add up. What they're not telling is I only played one game because I cracked my kneecap. One and a half points per game. How do you average that in one game? <laughs> so to give some context, well, let me start with the, the his first theory. Now, Whitlock... Whitlock 
has made his new show all every day. He's just going after somebody. Like he has a thesis. He just has. He's just going after people, and he's going after Stephen A. Smith. And I think the problem with that I have with this is Whitlock considers himself a true blue journalist. Came up the right way. All this stuff. He's had a bunch of failed shows, and so he looks at at Stephen A. Smith and his credentials and resume as a true journalist and says, this guy as a journalist doesn't have the resume that I do, yet he's making a billion dollars at ESPN. So I think Whitlock is, he's shooting up at Stephen A. Smith and it's kind of clear that he's got some resentment there that might be coloring his analysis of Stephen A. Smith's career. Now, the, the thing, Larry, that I want you to look into is... Whitlock is accusing Stephen A. Smith about lying about his basketball career. And what's hilarious about it is the picture that's in Stephen A. A. Smith's book about his basketball career is that he played one game and he broke his knee in half or something. But the stats on his book are that he played one game and he averaged 1.5 points per game. And Whitlock is saying, how do you average? You play one game, you should have a round number. How do you how do you score 1.5 points in one game. So that made me chuckle. Uh, so we'll look. Well, this is a de- developing story. I don't know if Katie will have anything on this uh, at the top of the hour, but uh, that's my recommendation. Get into that uh, drama between those uh, two guys. All right, Larry, let's uh, wrap it up, buddy. What do we got? Weekly in Memoriam, who's passed oh, away. Why do we end since on Since the this? last time we visited. We always end on the dead guy. Um, okay, who do we? Oh, we got uh, we got Shecky Green. Okay, about this time Frank Sinatra saved Shecky Green's life. Please tell us this. Well, story. all I know is that uh, Shecky at the time. I don't. You know, it's Shecky's story. They they got after him because he was kidding around. He said something about some mob guys, and I don't know. They didn't like it, and uh, it's really not my story. And they they caught him in a backstage backstage, but in a. In a, in a hotel, and they started beating him up. Poor boy, they were beating the crap out of him. And Billy walked, and, and, and Jilly walked over, and Frank walked over, and Frank said, I think that's enough. <laughs> All right, Shecky Green is dead. The legendary stand-up comic who headlined in Las Vegas and opened for the likes of Frank Sinatra and Elvis Presley died on December, th- December 31st, Larry. It's 12 days ago. He was 97 years old. I don't know anything about Shecky Green except that uh, Don Rickles always jokes around about him. That was that clip. That was Don, not Shecky, in the Letterman clip. Quick break. Back with more right after this.